0: The Golden State Killer, a monster who preyed on women and couples, destroyed families, and reigned terror up and down California.
1: There was a knife at my throat with a masked man saying, you know, if you move, I'll push this knife all the way through your throat.
0: That's Chris Pedretti, survivor of the East Area Rapist, who she would later learn is Joseph James D'Angelo. It took years for Pedretti to talk about surviving that attack.
1: And honestly, my story is a little bit different than others because my family was very strict. My father was very strict. And I now know he was probably trying to protect me. But I was ordered, as well as my sister, to never talk about it, not to tell anybody. And so we did it. We didn't even talk to each other, my sister and I, not until uh, 2018 did we talk about it. is <laughs> kind of crazy, right?
0: Now, when I spoke with Chris, she was just getting ready to face D'Angelo in court once again and gave her victim impact statement at sentencing.
1: You have done just so much harm. And although I'm now on the road to putting this behind me, your children and your family are just going that going down that dark road. And you made that dark road. Um, but now he's going to rot in jail while he's victimizing his own children.
0: Pedretti is sharing her story in hopes of helping others. Today, she runs a group to help other survivors, which I will share with you at the end of the episode, and in my show notes. Before we dive into the case, I want to remind you that this is for mature audiences and still might not be for everyone. After the episode, I have a shout out for investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. And if you haven't already, sign up for the podcast newsletter and join our mailing list. I have stickers. More on that after this case. The Golden State Killer Survivors. investigators. You're on Deadline. From the social distancing studios in Las Vegas, Nevada, to your earholes. this is True Crime Deadline, a podcast discussing cold cases, murder, mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now your host, a man who sings happy birthday twice when washing his hands, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Announcer Man, and thank you, investigators, for joining me for episode 28, The Golden State Killers Survivors, which takes us to my home state, California, full of sunshine, movie sets, great weather, beaches, dreams, and in this case, nightmares. From 1973 to 1986, fired police officer Joseph James D'Angelo Jr terrorized California. D'Angelo committed at least 13 murders and numerous sadistic rapes and burglaries. You've heard the stories about him putting dishes on husbands' backs once he started attacking couples, and then threatening to kill the wife as he raped her if he heard the dishes move. He's most commonly referred to as the Golden State Killer. D'Angelo, however, had quite a few nicknames. The Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, the Diamond Knot Killer, the Night Stalker, the original Night Stalker, and the East Side Rapist, which is what he was called on December of 1976 when Chris Pedretti, who was just 15 years old, became his 10th known victim. Thank you for being here. And I know that this is a tough subject, so you just, uh, you lead the way.
1: You know what? Actually, it's not a tough subject for me. It's just I just feel like I say it a lot.
0: Tell me about your life um, during this time. When did this happen? And, and tell me about your life before um, before it happened.
1: So before this happened, I was a teenager. I was 15. And it was a week before Christmas. And so I would say I was a pretty normal kid. I went shopping, had sleepovers, um, babysat. You know, it was a pretty safe, predictable World that I lived in
0: and then what happened leading up to that like what was going on in your life that day?
1: I know that we were having um, like hang-up calls probably for a couple of weeks before and um, Honestly at 15 years old I just thought it was a boy who might have liked me or you know, I was a kid so it didn't alarm me at all Um, But really nothing out of the ordinary my parents went to a Christmas party probably around 630. And my sister was at work and she was going to be home by nine. That's what, uh, for anyone old schoolers out there, Montgomery (laughs) wards a long time ago. Um, and so it was only a couple hours that I would be home by myself. And then, um, my best friend had come over and we were hanging out and, uh, she had to go home to make Christmas cookies. So she was called away. It was really just gonna be a fun, easy night.
0: What were the events that, that took place, the horrible events in your life?
1: You're talking about the attack itself?
0: What are you able to share and feel comfortable sharing?
1: So, um, I, my friend was over, like I said, kinda of just take off where I left off at, and she had to leave, and so I put in a pizza, I remember that, I love pizza, and put my slippers on and went to go play the piano. Um, and probably had only been maybe five minutes, maybe 10, because I know I heard a noise, and I just ignored it, Um, again, thinking it was nothing. And within seconds from hearing that, there was a knife at my throat with a masked man saying, you know, if you move, I'll push this knife all the way through your throat, and I think for me, that was the most vivid memory because that is the moment that my body just kind of went numb with a shot of fear, if that's possible. (laughs) Um, And I kind of just turned into a robot kind of just doing what he told me to do. And so over the course, I would say over the next two hours, I was told repeatedly that he was going to kill me. Um, He brought me outside in the backyard. I remember this is December 18th, a week before Christmas. And, uh, that's where he cut my clothes off and then he would bring me in the house to rape me back out of the house, back in the house, back out of the house, back in the house, back out of the house. Um, you know, and he was ransacking and cussing and, um, and then after the last time I was laying on the, I was actually laying on the family room floor and he had moved my couch. And so the couch is normally against the sliding glass door. And he had moved the couch all the way to the fireplace. So the last time I was pushed down there, I felt the couch and I felt the fire. And I thought that he had caught our house on fire, our couch on fire, and then he was gonna leave me to die. So that was really scary. Um, And then uh, I tried to move, because I thought he was gone and he wasn't gone you know, he would be right there saying, don't move, I'll kill you. So he just stood very quietly next to me. A couple times he did that. And then the third time, honestly, I didn't care if I was going to die. I was prepared. I was done. So I actually got up, was able to get, you know, it was a little difficult because I was tied up, but get up. And I knew at that point, if he was around the corner that I was done, but I, I didn't care
0: i'm sorry that you had to go through that and um thanks for sharing part of what happened to you um how how did you get help
1: so i I, um, hopped over to the um, door to make sure it was unlocked so somebody could get in and then i hopped back over to the telephone and back then um, a lot of people don't know this but we didn't have 911 so you had to call the operator um, but I didn't call the operator. I called my friend the one who had just left and Told her to come, you know Tell your parents I've been raped bring a knife and they ran over and then they took it from there They called the police. And we had to find my sister find my parents
0: And how did you know? Um, <clears throat> that it was associated with all these other string of rapes and murders and everything else the terror that's happening in California at the time
1: I didn't know because it didn't get publicized until number eight. And I was number 10. So, you know, and it's Christmas and you're out and about. So it wasn't something that was really big in the papers or on the news at that time. Plus, I I didn't watch the news a lot. So, (laughs) so I I didn't hear about it. I had no idea who it was.
0: At what point were you able to connect it?
1: Uh, when the police told me,
0: uh, was that back then or was it recently?
1: Uh, no, it was back then. Um, interesting i don 't remember the details, but I knew that back then. I think that when we went into the department the next day, maybe they told me i 'm not really sure to be honest with you, but I knew at a younger age
0: just for people that didn 't live through it and you know it was different parts of California that this man terrorized, um, and people were living in fear,
1: yeah, yes, they were, and you know as the uh, as the attacks kept on happening, obviously there was a lot more fear and you know, he began to play the games, you know, what they say, if you have a dog, the house, he won't come. Of course he came when there was a dog or, um, uh, when he, uh, I think they said that he never struck when there was a man in the house. And then he began doing that. So for me, I was at the, it started in June of 76. I was December of 76. And then I think, um, I think number 16, he began the couples and he really started changing it up.
0: And, you know, you were such a young girl when you were, um, attacked and in a horrible way, and you were in what should have been a safe place, your house. Um, how were you able to, to move past that and, and begin healing?
1: Well, at the beginning, um, it was very difficult. I remember I couldn't take a shower unless somebody was home. Um, one time I was home by myself <clears throat> probably the middle of the day. Um, and I heard a noise and I think that was probably the biggest thing is because I ignored that noise that I heard. It took me a long time, um, up until recently to forgive myself for not running out the door because there was a door right there. And I think that for a long time, any noises I heard, I, you know, was hyper vigilant about it and I would run next door and make somebody come look through the house or, you know, uh, but we moved, shortly after that in uh i think it was june of 77 to a new house and honestly my story is a little bit different than others because my family was very strict my father was very strict and i now know he was probably trying to protect me but i was ordered as well as my sister to never talk about it not to tell anybody and so we did it we didn't even talk to each other my sister and i not until Uh, 2018. Did we talk about it? Just kind of crazy, right? Uh, We're both in our 50s. So um, I think basically what I did is I just kind of repressed the memories, moved on the best I could, and maybe found other ways to cope, which maybe weren't so healthy, um, and then not talking about it. So I pretty much became pretty isolated. It just was a really terrible time to not understand what had just happened, why it happened, and have nobody to ask.
0: How did you take that? And when you look back at that as an adult, um, I don't know if you're a parent. Are you a parent?
1: Yep, three kids.
0: Okay. Was he doing that um, because back then he didn't want to bring attention to the family? Do you think it was because he just wanted you to forget it? Or maybe he didn't know how to talk about it? Why do you think that was? How How do you interpret that?
1: Well, it hasn't been until probably the last year that I've begun to interpret it in a positive way. So growing up, I had no idea why. I mean, I just thought obviously I must have done something wrong or I wasn't even aware of the shame that I was feeling. I was just too young. I didn't have any reference to any of it. So it was just very, very confusing to me. Um, But now that I know more about the seventies culture, even though I lived in it, it was surrounding me. So I didn't, I couldn't describe what I was living in. Right. Um, and so, you know, now I understand the shame of of that uh of rape in the 70s, uh, that it's always a woman's fault. Uh, what were you wearing? What were you doing? And I was in my house and it was 7 30 at night, so obviously I wasn't doing anything, but um now that I'm older, I can look at it and say, you know, he probably was trying to protect me from what would be said. But he just didn't do it in a very good way. Well, it wasn't loving. It was you know, don't ever. And he never talked about it either. And neither did my mom.
0: And now you—is there a support group for um, for this devil of a person? Like in the survivors, <laughs> like are you are you able to talk to other people other than your sister?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So the so the survivors are a great group of women. The ones that I have met. And we met actually at the hearings. And um and I had always, because this was a secret, remember. So oh, there was don't talk. So when I would hear someone talk about it, I was just like, shh, <laughs> like you're not supposed to talk about this. And as I started meeting people at the courthouse or at the jail, um, I was just amazed how many of us there were. And so I had invited everybody to my home after a hearing backyard. And we all got together where there weren't reporters or whatnot. We just got to know each other and they're amazing. I mean, without their support, like, like spending a, an evening with them, you're just on top of the world because there's so much bravery they're, they're beautiful women. They're successful women. They, we share a story, but that's not our identity. And so I've just met a lot of different people that I never would have met.
0: How did you muster up the courage to go to court and, and <laughs> what, what made you do that?
1: Well, uh, so for the arraignment, I, I was told, uh, I found out about it two days before and I was in LA by myself on a trip and I had really put this all behind me, right? This like, so for me to get a call at six in the morning and they say they caught him. Like, what are you talking about? Like just furthest from my mind. And then I realized, Oh, this guy's alive. And, um, I fell apart. I, it was, it was like the first day it happened. And my husband said, Chris, I'll fly out and come get you and you can fly back with me. My daughter said the same. I honestly could not function. And, uh, thank God I had a really nice boss there and she got me on a plane and she was super awesome. I'm indebted to her forever. Um, And I don't know, we got home, we sat in the backyard, drank a bottle of wine, (laughs) possibly two, (laughs) (laughs) and I was like, you know, okay, now that he's been caught and these people never gave up, like I need to deal with this. And so the next day we went and saw Anne-Marie Schubert, just us, and I got, I went and I bought a rose for every year that he had been. Um, on the loose, what do we call it? Um, yeah. I was forty-two, since you know I had been raped, and I put them all in one container. And as I put them in one by one, it was really easy, right? And as towards the end, I'm trying to shove them in, and this was kind of a large vase, and it just was really eye-opening to see that many roses, each one of them being a, a rape victim or a, a murder victim, and I don't know, it was just really overwhelming. So we drove down there and I was able to spot, talk with her a little bit and then I uh, found out about the arraignment the next day. So at that point I was in, scared to death.
0: <laughs> it's just so amazing in, in how strong you are and always have been. And up till this point, you know, you never talked about it. You know, mm-hmm. you never, you tried to push it out of your mind. You had right. no one to talk to. And then instantly you fall apart and then become this strong woman that you are today. It's amazing. I
1: think, I, you know, I think that it was a, a rebirth of some sort because after, you know, for those many years, yeah, it was just, I didn't deal with it. You know, I just didn't. And then when it's in my face again, and all the emotions flood back in, and it's just like, it, I, it was just like the day I got raped. Like, you can run, but you can't hide, right? You can, you can store it in the back of your head, but it's still gonna be there. And I think that day, going to Anna Marie Schubert's office and the next day to the arraignment was kind of me taking it back. It was my second chance.
0: I'm glad that you did that. Me too. Through the decades, while Chris struggled to make sense of being a survivor, detectives tried to make sense of how he was able to elude arrest for so long. They posted FBI posters all over California, warning residents of a dangerous, clean-cut white man with blonde or light brown hair and athletic build, who taunted police and his victims. This is a recording of D'Angelo. Absolutely terrifying. Now, during all of this, D'Angelo hid in plain sight as a family man with a wife and three children. And as a working police officer, then neighborhood mechanic. He was trusted by the community and probably thought he got away with it. That is until April 24, 2018, when then 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was arrested on multiple counts of rape and murder. Detectives were able to use forensic genealogy to match the suspect DNA left behind at rapes and murders to D'Angelo's through a familial match. What's your reaction to the DNA leading to the arrest? Well, you know, just that concept.
1: Well, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was amazing. I didn't know it was going to happen so quickly because we had been, you know, it had been on on the news and whatnot. And I thought D'Angelo was dead. I mean, that was another way how I managed to cope with this, that he must be dead. And so I didn't think much of the DNA being associated with him.
0: Yeah. And then, um, you know, they were describing him in court. I know that you were in court because I saw a news clip of you outside of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so anyway, uh, when he was doing his plea deal, um, I mean, he can barely talk or at least that's bullshit. Yeah. He's acting like that. Like what it I was taken aback by that, and I'm glad that the attorneys pointed out the fact that he was on his motorcycle and he was lifting stuff heavy in the yard um, the day or the the hours before he was arrested. So what what's your reaction to how he's acting in court right now?
1: Well, he's been like this from the very beginning. He came in in a wheelchair. Uh, so I believe he was um, doing all this stuff, like you're saying, like even the day before. And then when they brought him in three days later for the arraignment, he was in a wheelchair and could hardly speak. And we're just like, oh, you are, I mean, that was the most apparent, right? Because it'd only been three days. So there is no way that you feigned all this, you know, weakness or dementia or whatever he's trying to make it look like. So, and then the next time we saw him, he probably lost 30, 40 pounds. The next time we saw him, he'd lost another 30 pounds. And it's a game, it's all a game. And um, they even talked about in the hearing, I did learn some new things also last week, that when he was arrested uh, for the dog repellent and mm-hmm. the hammer, that he faked a heart attack and was twisting around like he was a crazy guy. So this isn't new.
0: We were talking about that on Law & Crime when I was um, a guest on that and they were covering, doing wall-to-wall coverage of, of court. And such a weird experience also Um, to have all of this go down. And I'm assuming it's like a media circus outside of where it's taking place, but it's actually not in a courtroom, right? Because of the pandemic, everyone, they they needed a bigger space. It's in a ballroom. (laughs) Yeah. So what was that like just going through all the sea of reporters? And what, if you could paint a picture for me and how close are you to him? Are you in the room or is it video?
1: Oh, no, we're there. So the, the front of the room is a table with him and the public defenders. And then it's on a stage, you know, at the ballroom. And then, um, then the judge. And then a podium where the district attorneys spoke. And then um, there were rows of chairs distanced apart. I don't know. Did they show that on yeah. the uh, – so I had my family. So we had five of us together. And then six feet away would be the next set. If it was one person, it would just be by themselves, and then and it would keep doing that. And then they had two big screens in the front, so if you couldn't see, you could see. You know, it's kind of like a sports event where you can have the 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 big you know screens up, so you could watch from there too. And he, we we're pretty close. I mean, I think there was maybe two rows in front of us. It was really easy to see him. And he had to face us. That's the other good thing is he had to look at us. Usually we're looking at his back, right? Because he's standing in that jail cell. Well, he had to look. He was right in front of us. Man. That was good. Um, That was satisfying.
0: (laughs) Another satisfying part of facing D'Angelo in court was making him see his known victims.
1: Okay, so as we were getting ready to go to court we were told that we could be either called by our name or by Jane Doe. And so I was like, well, heck, my name, please. And then about, I think it might have been two days before, I was told, no, you're all going to be Jane Doe. And that bothered me, right? Because I've worked really hard to get where I am. And Jane Doe, to me, is someone who is not known or anonymous or, you know, They've done something wrong, and they're hiding their name. You know, I don't know. It's just it's it's. My name's not Jane, and my last name's not Doe. <laughs> That's all I can say. And so, I expressed that to them. I was like, oh, "This does not make me happy." I respect that there are some um, victims that don't want to be identified. Totally understand that. Totally respect it. Um, and I said, "But I thought we had, you know, a choice." And she said, "Well." Um, you did, but it just got too complicated, so you're all going to be Jane Doe. I was like, I just, I can't be Jane Doe. I won't be Jane Doe. So I asked, can we please stand when they call our case? And I don't know if you watched or other people, but you will see that we were standing. Like they would say on December 18, 1976, me and my family would all stand. And then we'd sit, you know, and then the next case, they would stand. And they said Yes. That we could do that, and I was really excited about that because we needed to own that ballroom, that courtroom that day, not D'Angelo.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, when you call someone a Jane Doe, I mean, honestly, you don't even have any idea. But if you see all of us stand,
0: mm-hmm.
1: well, now you can see we're representing ourselves, and that it is not our secret, and that. D'Angelo, I don't care how much you're trying not to see. You've got to be noticing that people are standing up. And that was really just our, our, you know, message of it's not our secret. And we are giving you back the shame today, D'Angelo. And I think that, I don't know, it was so great. And then we had um, a friend, Phyllis, and she's number one. Uh, She was the first one that was reported. And she's in the hospital. She's still in the hospital. And she couldn't come, and she really wanted to be there, and we really wanted her to be there. And so when they read her case, all of us stood up. That's wonderful. And she was able to watch it from her hospital room. Gives me goosebumps still.
0: Yeah, it's solidarity, you know, and and it's strength. And, you know, again, it's a message that we are stronger than you. You didn't get what you wanted to do.
1: That's right. You got the wrong group of women. We're a force to be reckoned with.
0: Now, the next time Chris and the other survivors will face D'Angelo will be for his sentencing this week, the week of August 17th, 2020. When I spoke with Chris, she was working on her victim impact statement. Take a listen.
1: So I actually was working on it today. It's really a hard thing to do to try to concisely put your feelings together for a statement that's, you know, permanent right? It's not like, Oh, I don't feel that way anymore. Like once we once it's out, once it's out there, it's out there and he gets copies of it and it goes into the arrest
0: file. But he's such a sociopath and such a sicko, you know, I mean, he's even, you know, what we're presuming faking all of this health issue.
1: Definitely. You
0: know, it's all again, it's always been a game to him. So do you think that you're gonna make an impact with changing his thinking since it's such a sick mind or what are you hoping to do are you hoping to make that more of your healing process or are you hoping to help others that hear you what how are you putting it together
1: um i i would say this is more selfish for me it's um There's nothing selfish about
0: this. Like you're a, you're a hero (laughs) and, you know, to be Uh, able to be a voice for other people that are not going to be able to. So uh, I'm sorry for interrupting you. but No,
1: that's okay. Thank you for saying that. Um, I really want to make an impact because here's how I see it. And if you talked to me two days ago, I would not have said this. Like, it's still kind of evolving in my head. Like, what do I think of this soulless shell of a body? (laughs) But, um. Here's how I see it, right? I I don't think he's schizophrenic, so don't go there. But I think he's two people. You know, turn on the light and I can be this big, bad monster. Turn on the other light and I can be a father. Not a very good one. We've heard all his stories, but still a father. And we know he's lied. Like his, his daughters did not even know he was a police officer. He told them that his reactions, you know, how he freaked out all the time, Crazy Joe, was uh, PTSD from the, you know, military that he was in. So he lied to them all along. So it's not, he knows, you know, difference. And I really wanted to, I really want to connect to the father and I'm sure he'll just turn me off and go the other way. So, so far what I have is, you know, all of his children are girls and he has a granddaughter and they were all 15 at one time. And I really wonder, have you ever thought, about your children going through this by someone like you like you you have done just so much harm and although i'm now on the road to putting this behind me your children and your family are just going that going down that dark road and you made that dark road and they're just now going to be learning you know who their dna is with and who their father is and i'm going to assume that's pretty tough and they don't deserve that. And they are victims, just like we are. Um, but now he's going to rot in jail while he's victimizing his own children.
0: And even if you were to just say, go up there and just look at him and just say, you're an evil person. Because the the fact that you being there and having been there, and the fact that you're able to talk to me and other people, he didn't get what he wanted, did he? He didn't break no. you. He didn't.
1: No, he didn't. No. And that that is very, that's very true, you know, and the only way you don't get broken, you know, kind of going back to that support is, is by having support. And I, you know, I did get it once he was arrested in, and therapy, don't ever forget therapy. So, you know, two solid years of therapy and good support. And I don't know if I've shared with you, but I've also started a Facebook group Hmm. Um it's called uh, Sexual Assault Survivors. It's time to tell your story. And I can send you a link
0: if you like. Yes, please.
1: Yes, and it's I've got about two hundred and seventy people on it, and it's support. That's all it is, is support. So, well, that's not all it is. We also I put up articles about, you know, how do you best support a, a rape victim or you know, I don't know, just all the different things that people ask because a lot of a lot of people on this site um it's not from a stranger. It's from somebody they know. And my heart bleeds for them because that's a really, really long journey to recovery. And they need someone in a group where there's each other. And there are other members from the East Area Rapist on that site as well, giving encouragement. So it's a really healing place. And I feel like so wonderful when somebody says, I'm going to share my story now because I was that person. I could never share my story. So anytime someone says that, my heart just jumps out for joy for them.
0: I think that that's wonderful. And I'm going to include the links on all of my social media and my oh website. Oh my gosh, that'd be amazing. Truecrimedeadline.com. We're going to have it there. Um, how else can people help you? I mean, I guess it's just get the word out and support your, your new mission.
1: Yes. And I think that what's important, because I hear this a lot, is, well, I'm not a victim, so I feel like I shouldn't be on that site. And that is not true. Because victims can talk to victims, we know what it's like. We blah blah blah, but it's the people out there that don't know that make people not say anything. It's the it's the judgment. It's the unawareness of what a rape victim goes through. Um, let's see. I've heard this even for myself. Well, why doesn't she just move on and get over it? It's been a lot of years. They don't mean harm. They don't know. And so the more education that we can get out there, the more education is this is not our secret. Mm -hmm. It's not ours and it's not our shame. It's his, Mm -hmm. it's the perpetrators, give it back to them. And I feel like when the perpetrator, like that's on their side, right? Oh, well, they'll be shamed if they talk about it. So we're almost protecting them. Mm -hmm. Well, that needs to stop and we need to start telling our story and not feel ashamed.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that goes to um, other cases that we sometimes don't even think about being rape. You know, um, a a woman can be raped in a relationship, um, you know, by their husband, by their wife, by their um, boyfriend, whatever, you know. So, I mean, we need to really also change how we identify victims.
1: Right. And don't judge them either. There's date rape. There's Almost date rape there. I mean, there's so many different categories. There's being molested. You know, Mm -hmm. it is a it's a big thing. And um, even though we're in 2020, it's still not talked about. And so we're still protecting the bad guys.
0: Well, hopefully, um, you know, in in what you're doing, that'll help other people. And I really um, admire you. And um, thank you for talking to us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me on your podcast and focusing on what really should be focused on and not the gruesome act. I appreciate that.
0: Today, Chris is on a mission to help others. As I mentioned, she runs a group to help other survivors called Sexual Assault Survivors. It's Time to Tell Your Story. As for D'Angelo, he's going to rot in prison, and he's likely to be sentenced with at least 10 life terms plus. Meanwhile, survivors of his evil can continue to pick up the pieces knowing that when they hear a noise in the house, that it's not him. I'll post some case photos and documents on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, on my YouTube channel, social media accounts all under the same name. And don't forget, after this episode, I have a shout out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I have a couple true crime podcast recommendations just for you. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit TrueCrimeDeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now, a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Again, uh, writing reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. We're up against networks, studios, TV channels, you name it. It's easy. It's free. Hit five stars. Subscribe. Tell a friend. Write a review. And include your real name and your podcast name. If you're a podcaster, you'll get a double shout-out. And also, email me if you signed up for our mailing list, because I'll send you stickers... If you write a review. Now, the first one comes from Lucky Gene, who writes a new true crime podcast that I love, great production values, skilled host, unique subjects, and really good. This is an exceptional addition to the true crime podcast ocean of offerings. Thank you. The second one is from Diet Bet Fan, and it's just titled Love! Such great insight from a dedicated journalist. Bravo. Well, thank you guys. I have a lot more cases coming up for this limited season two. So stay tuned. And speaking of podcasts, I have a podcast recommendation for you. Everyone's always asking me what true crime TV shows I'm watching and what podcasts I'm listening to. So this season, I'm going to share with you some of my favorite podcasts, including Nature Versus Narcissism and Mens Rea. Take a listen. Mens
1: Rea is the legal principle of criminal intent. It means literally, the guilty mind. Join me, Sinead, every fortnight to discuss Ireland and the UK's most heinous crimes, and the court cases that followed. Do you want to know more about a kink killing in Dublin in 2012? Or serial killers in Scotland? Whatever your guilty pleasure, you'll find it, and all the details, with me. Find Men's Rea wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And, and we're, we're the hosts, hosts of Nature vs. Narcissism, Narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests.
0: Sacramento, California. Canton, Michigan.
1: Green River, Honolulu. Honolulu. Hawaii. Omaha, Nebraska. Niagara, North Dakota
0: Gloucester, United Kingdom Dakota County Wyoming Epizoyacon Hidalgo Mexico Flint, Michigan
1: Boston, Massachusetts Phoenix, Arizona Woodruff, South Carolina Hudson Valley, New York In Season 2, we will examine notorious killers in cities across the globe from A to Z. We'll delve into their criminal history as well as their upbringing to try to determine why these killers commit these violent acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was was it plain old old narcissism? narcissism? Find us on your favorite podcast streaming service. Don't Don't call call the the cops. cops. Bye. Bye.